It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. We are in the year 1914, for those of you that have not been participating uh, in this uh, series so far. Of course, I'm talking to a whole bunch of people that have been, so you guys are like, uh, yeah, we know that, Eric. But this is for the podcast too, right? And so this is the fifth episode, and we're moving through uh, the history of what is now, uh, in what I'm ex- explaining now, sort of the beginnings of what's known as the Great War. Some people would call it the War to End All Wars, which is a very poor name for it because it seemed to instead be the war to start all the other wars. But it was intended, that was its political uh, spin. That was the uh, propaganda line for it. How, how else? I mean, if you're going to recruit a whole bunch of soldiers, I mean, it does make sense. It's like, hey, if you give your life in this war, there will never need to be another one. I mean, that's a pretty good sales pitch for someone to expend their life, their blood, uh, to risk life and limb. It didn't turn out to be that. And in fact, it turned out to be a catalyst, a starting point that is going to change the earth in which we have grown up in. It is so dramatically impacted by the events of 1914 through 1918, technically you could say all the way through 1919 in the Treaty of Versailles, but we're just at the beginning of it. So we, uh, the last session uh, was talking about uh, Gavrilo Princip and his bullets. Uh, He shot uh, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo uh, June 28th, I think I accidentally said early July. I'm not sure where that came from. You ever had said something, you're like, I don't know why I said it that way. Uh, but late June, June 28th, uh, 1914. And now we're going to enter into a month of crisis in the world because we have a lot going on. Austria-Hungary cannot just sit by and do nothing. I mean, if, if your nation just had one of its royals killed by this small little irritant uh, known as Serbia who has been a pain, a thorn in their side. And you've always, as Austria-Hungary, wanted to sort of have an excuse to swallow it up into your massive empire. This becomes one of those obvious situations that you can blame it on the indignity of it all. Declare war on this little teeny nation. The world can't say much, right? They'll just say, yes, we understand. They'll nod along and you can then swallow up this empire and then bring it under your boot. It all makes sense. The problem is Serbia is a Slav country and it is connected with another Slav country which you really don't want to pick a fight with and that is Russia. And Russia is in an agreement with Serbia. And so you you can start to see these things happen because When Austria then declares war on Serbia, then Russia mobilizes. Germany sees Russia mobilizing and then declares war on Russia because Germany is in an agreement with Austria-Hungary. Okay, you guys starting to see dominoes fall? And that's sort of where we're at in this. We're in this month between June 28th, 1914 and July 28th, 1914 when Austria is going to declare war on Serbia. And so now we have a spark, and we have a whole bunch of dry uh, grass and tinder that's just sort of sitting there ready to go up in flames. This is uh, part five. It's called Underestimating Albert. You know, I, I've been trying to come up with a better title for this one. I, I, the title is fantastic. Remember, I'm a title guy, right? The title really says it, which is why I've kept it. But it is funny how people online judge a message by its title. And there's, this is a really important message. And I don't know if the, if the name underestimating Albert speaks to people's souls, like I have to listen to that one, right? But that's what this message is about. See, Albert is a king, he's the king of the Belgians. And you have William II, history's gonna typically call him Kaiser Wilhelm II, okay? so. When I say William II, I know, it's sort of the English way of translating it, lest I mess up on his name, which even when I say William, I've been told that that's not even correct, that there's, what was it again, it's like Wilhelm, 
and that's like really hard, okay? So, I mean, to get this accurate is almost too much for Eric. I mean, I'm struggling with all these accents to start with. So if I call him Vil Wilhelm, you can applaud, right? You can be like, well done. But if I call him William, you can just nod along and say, I understand why he's doing it. But William II is going to underestimate Albert I. And I'm gonna go into that, and it's going to, I hope, have an impact on your life. It's funny how history, at first blush, is sort of like, oh, it's just fascinating. But when you enter into it, and you allow the truth of what is taking place to impact you, it can transform your life. Here's our Albert. I like Albert. By the way, Albert's quickly in this study become one of my favorite historical characters. And that's saying a lot because I have a lot of favorite historical characters, right? But listen to a description from Barbara Tuckman on Albert, that he is a blend between Winston Churchill and Theodore Roosevelt. It's like, all right, you just sold me right there. Uh, uh, I mean, that, those are two of my favorite characters right there. And this is a blend. And the more you get to know this guy, you're thinking, how come I've never heard of this guy? I mean, King Albert I? I mean, who knows about King Albert I? And yet, as you go through this, you're like, I would like to know more about King Albert I. So I have a quote from King Albert I. It is going to happen August 2nd, 1914. Now remember, Bullets in Sarajevo is June 28th of 1914. Austria is going to declare war on Serbia July 28th, 1914. And so all of this is happening in a certain time frame where Germany is going to mobilize into action mode and they're going to set their sights on France. And I'll explain why as we're going forward. But to get to France, they need to go through Belgium. And they're expecting something very different than what they're going to run into. They're going to run into a guy named Albert. And Albert, this is just a quote, and this quote will make more sense because I'm going to put it as a bookend of this message too. At the very end, I'm going to get back to this quote. And that is, what does he take me for? It's one of the rare moments when Albert showed any emotion whatsoever. He was angry. Speaking of William II, he says, what does he take me for? I like that. Because in your spiritual life, you need to sort of have the same question when the devil comes knocking on your door and says, hey, I'd just like to transgress you know, this territory known as you, and I would like to come in and do what I need to do to accomplish my ends in this earth. And you look back and you say, I'm not Leopold II. I'm Albert I. And it's like, you're, it's this transformation of characters that is going to be a completely different response than Germany was expecting. So the necessity of Belgium, if you remember the previous messages, I was talking about, when I was talking about the insecurity of William, that the Germans have necessity. That's the, their justification in their mind, that there's no choice. They have to go to war, guys. They're, they're being encircled. And so it's a necessity that they go to war. You know, it's just nothing we can do about it. And there's a necessity when they go to war that they need to strike France. Well, what did France do to you? Well, we just need to deal with France before we get Russia because Russia is going to move slowly to battle and we don't want France to hit us on our backside when we do. So if we're going to actually go to war, which we have to, I mean, it's a necessity, we have to then strike France first. And to strike France first, we have to get them where they're not expecting us. We can't go across, you know, the wooded terrain where all their fortresses are. We need to go through a neutral country where they wouldn't have fortresses on their line. I mean, why would France have fortresses up against Belgium's uh, line? So we need to go through Belgium. But Germany has already signed like an agreement that they will protect Belgium's neutrality. So they would have to violate, I mean, there is nothing more disturbing than any country that has sworn to protect Belgium to transgress Belgium's neutrality. They wouldn't do that, would they? It's a necessity, is what the Germans say. It's a necessity. So we're going to call it the necessity of Belgium. Neutrality must be violated. So here's our map. Uh, and so I've shown this map a few times, and I, I could start whipping out different maps, but this map has been good because it has all these yellow dots on it, which are going to show you all of the countries that are going to get involved in this war uh, in the beginning. And it also shows the different alliances. So the reddish purple color are what are called the central powers. 
And Italy, because Austria and Germany are going to be aggressors, is going to slip out on the technicality. And they're going to be like, uh, no, we are sworn to defend you if you are attacked, but not if you're attacking. And then we have uh, the triple entente is how they're going to start out uh, as far as their, their name. And that's the blue countries, Russia, France, and uh, Great Britain. And uh, so this is how it starts. Now watch, I'm going to zoom in and I'm going to circle Belgium. Now, Belgium is just a little, small, diddly squat country that has always been in the midst of wars. Uh, if you study the history of Belgium, I mean, you sigh in just thinking what this poor little territory has gone through. Almost every great war in Europe seems to take place like right there. And ironically, World War I is going to start right there. And World War II is going to start there. Isn't that weird? It's like this country seems to, for some reason, have a spiritual importance. In fact, it's not just Belgium, it's Liège, Belgium. It's like there's something about that that is uh, very significant, maybe spiritually even. But you see that Germany and France, their borders combine, and there's a lot of border space, a lot of territory for Germany to go through. Of course, it's heavily wooded, and it's also lined with a whole bunch of forts. I mean, France isn't dumb. Right? They're going to stick their forts right there. They're not going to stick their forts on the Belgian border. That would be a waste of resource. And when you're in the, you know, the art of military science, you have limited resource. You want to spend it wisely. If you've ever played Risk or you know, Axis and Allies, you have, have to spend your resource wisely. Don't stick it up against a neutral country. So I'm going to, I, I put a star on the screen, and that's Paris, France. Okay, so Paris, France, for the German army, they feel the necessity that they need to strike first. Now, hopefully, out of the first four messages, you've at least gained the mindset behind Germany of what they're thinking, this encirclement fear, what they're calling the necessity. So their main strategy is they want to take Paris, and they have a very specific plan that they have been nurturing and cultivating for, I don't want to say two decades, but you know, it's been maybe 15 to 20 years, somewhere in there that they've been cultivating very specifically for Der Tag. Now, that's, that's German, and if I mispronounced it, uh, it probably has more like a uh, in a Der Tag. You know, I'm, I'm sure it has something like that, right, where you get a little spittle flying in the air as you say it. But it means the day. And the day has been mapped out for a long time. And if you study you know, D-Day in World, in World War II, you'll recognize there was a Der Tag in World War II. It just wasn't called with a German name. It was called D-Day. We had a little more English accent to it because it was the Allies hitting the Germans in that situation along the beaches of Normandy. But it was a similar thing. That one took like four years. You know, it was a huge project. Actually, I think it was like two and a half. But it was a huge project to create the plan. So you see France. The Germans want to hit Paris, France, grab it, seize it, and then turn their attentions towards Russia. But they have limited time to do this. You see, Russia is a vast empire with more people than any other nation on earth. And so technically, they have more manpower, more military power in that sense than any other nation. The problem is it moves like a colossus. It's sort of like comparing a young sprinter you know, to this old behemoth like an ogre in one of those you know, science fiction movies. It's like, yeah, that guy's going to take a while to get there. But when he gets there, it's going to be big time problems. So what we need to do is while he's trying to get out of his sleep you know, and stand up and move across you know, the, the border to attack us, we need to swiftly take out France. And that's the plan. That has always been the plan. But to do it, they need to do it quickly, and they can't go against forts to do it. So they need to violate Belgium and swing down from the north down upon Paris, and they need to do it quickly. And so you see I have the line from Germany straight through Belgium, and then boom, to hit Paris. Now this is called like a sledgehammer. And so I'm going to turn that into, like a, it's not the best looking sledgehammer, I, you know, I have to admit. But you'll notice that I put a number on it. They have, uh, the German mathematicians and military scientists have come up with a number, 950 hours. Basically, they need to take Paris by the 39th day of military operations. On the 40th day, 
All that has to be concluded and they need to begin moving their forces to defend against the 950th hour, against the Russians now arriving on the eastern borders. We have 950 hours, guys, to get this done and then to get over to defend our other side. Der Tag, the plan. So here's Barbara Tuckman. She says, the staff agreed that the invasion of Belgium would be entirely just and necessary. So that's the German thinking. It's entirely just and necessary. Isn't it funny how we talk to our souls and try and convince ourselves? It's called self-justification. This is totally fine. I'm, I, I know that everyone will understand. I'm sure God totally gets it. Yeah, that I have to violate everything he's asked me to do, right? I have to go against his word. I have to go against his law. Yeah, I, but he's going to understand in this situation. So it would be entirely just and necessary because the war would be won for the defense and existence of Germany. Schlieffen, now you're going to get to know Count Schlieffen, uh, and he's the architect of the plan. Okay, he's like this old geezer that's actually going to pass away before World War I even starts. He's never even going to see his plan uh, unfurl. But he's sort of the, the, uh, the old guy that has the plan, Schlieffen. So Schlieffen's plan was maintained, and Moltke, who's the, the, basically the, the commander-in-chief, he's the main guy over the armed forces of Germany, and Moltke consoled himself with the thought, and as he said in 1913, remember we're in 1914, that we must put aside all commonplaces as to the responsibility of the aggressor. Success alone justifies the war. Even if we're considered the aggressor, which is a big deal in a world war to be considered the one who starts it, even if that happens, it's a necessity, and that justifies all of our behavior. So 950 hours to Paris, the plan. Der Tag, or I need to add a little uh, der, der Tag. I, I don't know. Sorry, guys, all of you that speak German fluently are like, this guy stinks at that. And I'm even German. Isn't that terrible? I studied Spanish instead. If this was a Spanish message, I would do a lot better. The necessities for German victory, the six musts. So let's put ourselves in Germany uh, now, and let's think like a German, and let's appropriate this and, and reason this through. I mean, if you genuinely felt that you, were going, that you were being encircled. If you lived in a paranoia like that, which is, it's just so ironic because there's no evidence to support the fact that any other nation wanted, I mean, France would have loved to take back certain territories, Alsace and Lorraine, we'll get to that. So it's not altogether false that France doesn't have a mindset of militarism, but it's to grab back territory that the Germans took for them in 1870 and they believe it's theirs, and even the people of Alsace and Lorraine feel that they're French. So you can just imagine the tensions for the last 44 years on that front. So yes, that does exist, but France has no interest in starting a war. They just know it's coming because they can feel the Germans breathing hard across the line. They know that the Germans are preparing for war, and they're stronger than the French. The French are, do not have the superiority in numbers or in military uh, strength. So for the Germans to win this, they have six musts. First must, we must avoid a war on two fronts with Russia and France. Very difficult to do, guys, because you are surrounded by Russia, who's a I mean, mammoth uh, nation, and then you have France on the other side. And both of them are in agreement with each other. So if you have to go to war against Russia, well, then what would France do? Well, France would attack from the other side. So if you're thinking that way, what do you do? You're going to have to somehow solve this riddle, which means, number two, to do this, we must violate the promised neutrality of Belgium. Three, we must put 85% of our, arm, our entire army, or 1.2 million men, roughly, into our Belgium sledgehammer from the north. You know how crazy of an idea this is, guys? To take 80 5% of your military power and stick it in one spot. And it's not even a direct hit. It's a flanking maneuver, which means that leaves every other part of your military operations in the defense of your nation thin and vulnerable. But you have to trust that France isn't going to be able to get through that line quick enough, and Russia is going to be the slow-moving colossus and you have 950 hours to get this done. And if you can take Paris and silence France, 
then you can swing all your weight back against Russia. Uh, so that it says one, two, and three. Pro, sorry about that, guys. That's four, five, and six on the screen. In my notes, it's correct, but when I translated it, obviously, it didn't want to fix it for me. Uh, number four, we must take Paris in under 950 hours before Russia can mobilize its troops. Number five, we must not allow any delays in our passage through Belgium. This is going to become very, very important. All roadblocks to us reaching the prize of Paris in 950 hours must be removed swiftly and violently without mercy. The survival of Germany is at stake. And five, what is it, six? And to do this, we must buy off the Belgium king. Two million pounds sterling? Now, I've tried to figure out how much that is now because even when someone heard how much they were planning on paying the king of Belgium to bribe him, uh, to let him through, and to just stand aside, uh, they were shocked at how much Germany was ready to pay. Of course, Germany knew that they were going to get it out of France's money, coffers, and pay it through France's money because they were going to conquer France. You have to realize how they were thinking this through. But my guess is it's close to a billion. Okay, that would be my guess. In because the British pound has lost ninety, it's like ninety-eight percent of its value since nineteen fourteen, and so what it would have been valued at, it was the it was the great monetary currency of the world uh, at the time. So my guess is we're talking roughly a billion dollars. And, you know, hey, if you're the king of Belgium, you know, to get a billion dollars, you know, and just to stand aside and not make an issue, you know, you have to admit that's not a bad deal. The Germans were convinced that the Belgium king would do this. Now, I'll tell you why they were convinced. There's good reason. Remember, we talk about like fact, faith, and experience. There is experience with this Belgium king, and we know that he's, he's very greedy. He's very interested in money. The players in the story. So I'll, I'll introduce you to Alfred von Schlieffen, or Count Schlieffen. Uh, he's the architect of the plan of destruction. Sort of an interesting character, too. Can't you just sort of see him in a, a novel or a movie? He's just, he, he'd sort of be a bad guy. I, I could see it, you know, in, in his, just his, his, the way he looks. And he's sort of a bad guy in this story. Okay, his plan, he's the architect of a plan of destruction. All right, swift destruction to destroy an entire nation. Okay, that doesn't sound good, right? And so when you spend your entire life, and I'm not just, I'm not exaggerating what I'm saying, this guy spent his life on this. Every thought he had was on the plan. It's even called the Schlieffen plan. Okay, in history, it's called the Schlieffen plan. And so you have someone who spends a lot of time on a plan to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, specifically you too. Isn't it a weird thought to think that there's a Count Schlieffen out there that's thinking all day long about how to destroy you? I mean, it's a little disturbing, a little destabilizing to ponder that, right? And yet, you need to recognize that even though Schlieffen has a plan, God has a greater plan, always. And he has a plan to secure you. So you just need to know that, and he's far more powerful than Schlieffen. I mean, come on. So we have Alfred von Schlieffen, and then we have King Leopold II of Belgium. So he is the king of Belgium. As Schlieffen is designing this plan, he is designing it around the idea of Belgium being a necessity. And who is king of Belgium? Leopold II. Now, you don't know much about Leopold II. However, Schlieffen is convinced that Leopold has a purchase price. Okay, so if that tells you at least a little, I'm hinting a little at Leopold's uh, character, but I'm going to liken him to the first man or the one controlled by the flesh. Now, there is an irony in this in that his, he's called the second and then Alfred, Albert is, is the first, so it's totally, totally backwards. But that's more the fact that it's like uh, Esau and Jacob. Uh, you know, Esau was born first. He's a symbol of the flesh. Jacob is born second. He's a symbol of the man that is hungry for the things of the spirit. And in the long run, just like the promise was said to uh, Rebekah, it says uh, the, the second or the latter will rule over the first. So that's, uh, Albert's going to become the first, right? And, uh, and Leopold will become the second, right? That's, I'm trying to weave it spiritually together here for you. But he's the first man controlled by the flesh. This man is not healthy. Okay, now I'm going to throw out some names. 
to identify you, because most of us don't know about Albert and we don't know about Leopold. For whatever reason, the history of Belgium is kept from us as uh, Westerners. I'm not exactly sure why we don't learn more about these guys, but Leopold II is in the category of mm, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler. Isn't that a pretty extreme company to be thrown into? This man is responsible for killing roughly around 10 million men and women and children from the Congo for his own avarice, his own wealth gain. Um, okay, and we've never even heard of it, right? So we're dealing with someone that you can understand why Schlieffen, in his plans, is like, yeah, we can buy him. Why? Because he's proven that money is his number one objective. However, by the time World War I comes around, Leopold has passed away. And someone new has replaced him. And this new quantity, this new king is unknown. But he's of the same line, right? And so shouldn't we presume as Germans that he would be of the same nature? I'm going to call him the second man, the one controlled by the Spirit. And so I don't know if you see the gospel analogy already beginning to unfold here, but though you were born of Adam, and though Adam did create, you know, did commit treason against the kingdom of heaven, though you are of the same nature when you start, there is something that is going to be different about you. And so when Schlieffen is coming up with his plan, is he taking into account, is he, welcome to my title, underestimating Albert. 1 Corinthians 15, 46 through 49, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. In other words, the natural, which I always put over here, is first. The spiritual is not first, it's second. And afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. So the first man is earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Introducing King Leopold II. I'm calling him King Leo II. Belgium's fleshly throne sitter. There he is. All right. You know, you can't quite tell. Of course, when you just see him, he sort of looks like Santa Claus, right? But he has a frown on his face, and so when I start talking about him, you're like, yeah, maybe there is a little evil uh, there. Uh, he's a bad guy. So here's what Barbara Tuckman says. German confidence on this score was due to placing rather too high a value on the well-known avarice of Leopold II. So avarice is craving, like intense craving for wealth. And so German confidence in going through Belgium was due to placing rather too high a value on the well-known avarice of Leopold II. In other words, it was well-known to all the other world leaders that he was purchasable. He had a buy price. So uh, Leopold II, who was king of the Belgians in Schlieffen's time, tall and imposing with his black spade beard and his aura of wickedness composed of mistresses, money, Congo cruelties, and other scandals. So here's King Franz, Franz Joseph, who is actually king over Austria-Hungary. So the Archduke Franz Ferdinand is not, I think he's nephew uh, to Franz Joseph. Franz Joseph is the king, and this is what he says about the Belgian king. Leopold is a thoroughly bad man. There are few who could be so described, but the king of the Belgians is one. And that's an interesting description in history of, you know, from one king to the next. Uh, Barbara Tuckman says this, because Leopold was avaricious, craving wealth, money, among other vices, the Kaiser, remember this is William II, supposed that avarice would rule over common sense, and he conceived a clever plan to tempt Leopold. So, now, if we're going to stick ourselves in this situation, the devil has an agenda in this world, and strangely, there we stand. There the church stands, right smack in the way. And so, he has to come up with a plan 
to actually make his way to the destruction of this world, to take over, to gain the control that he craves. But if we are functioning in first man mode, if the church is functioning in first man mode, yep, we're dupable. Yep, the enemy will be able to make his way through, we'll stand to the side, and he will use us as a thoroughfare to accomplish his ends. But if we function the way God has commissioned us to function, in a second man condition, What's going to change? So King Leopold II of Belgium, he was known as the Mad King. He's responsible for the death of an estimated 10 million Congolese. The story, I'm not going to go into it, it's not edifying. But what he did even to con his way into gaining a territory, a colony in the Congo, and then how he took all the resources of that Congo for himself and basically killed men and women to accomplish. He had every, the, basically the nation turned into a slave state to gain all the natural resources from that Congo region for his own pocket. I mean, it's a disastrous story. It's a horrifying story, which like I said, is not edifying, but let it suffice to say that you could understand why the Germans think they have something here. They have a handle. They have a way to fulfill their plan. Ha ha ha. The Night King Rises and Just in Time, 1909. If you just think about it on, a, on the global calendar of things, World War II, 1914, and Leopold is going to die. And yet this unknown quantity that no one knows, he's a very silent man, hardly talks at all. This guy named Albert I is just the one in secession. He's not the son of Leopold. He's like the nephew of Leopold. And no one really knows him. All the international communications, you could just see, well, what do you know about uh, Albert? Uh, you know, nothing. Uh, you know, he just doesn't even talk. We all get together. He just sits and listens. No one really knows what's inside of him, but there must be some kind of Belgian avarice. You know, some kind of thing in the blood there, you know, where they just crave uh, control and power. And we can play that to our advantage. So June 28th, 1914, let's go back and sort of re rewind the clock. This is the pistol shot in Sarajevo. Gavriola Princip is going to shoot Franz Ferdinand. Now we're going to jump forward a month. And we have July 28th, 1914. So Austria-Hungary, the country that Franz Ferdinand is from, is going to declare war on Serbia, which is where Gavrilo Princip is from. Then, because of that, Russian mobilization for war is going to begin against Austria on the same day. Immediately, the moment Austria-Hungary declares war on Serbia, Russia doesn't declare war, they just move their troops. And everyone knows what they're coming to do. They're coming to defend Serbia against Austria-Hungary. So then August 1 of 1914, Germany does something that even many of its leading generals were like, what are you thinking? Russia didn't declare war. Why don't you just mobilize instead of declaring war? Because it makes you look like the aggressor. And again, Germany had already accepted the fact that they may look like the aggressor, but it's a necessity. And they don't realize how that's going to affect them as a nation for the you know, next uh, decades. I mean, literally, it's going to so massively impact them. But Germany is going to declare war on Russia. What does Germany have to do with Russia? I mean, how do these two suddenly end up in a war together? Because of Gavrilo Princip's shot of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Neither nation had anything to do with that. And yet, because of the dynamics, uh, you're going to see all of these things begin to happen. So that's August 1st. Now, August 3rd, the Germans are going to declare war on France. Isn't that an interesting thing to do? It's like we have a gunshot in Sarajevo. And then Russia, after Austria declares war, Russia is going to start to mobilize, not declare war, just mobilize and begin to bring their troops there. Germany declares war on France, I'm sorry, war on Russia, and then turns and declares war on France. It's like we have, as they were saying back then, Armageddon on our hands. And then August 4th, which is where we're going to be right now, 1914, the German entry into Belgium. Now, I, in my next message, I'm actually going to go back in time a couple days and fill in a missing piece that I'm not covering now. Because right now I'm covering a very specific thing, and that is Germany is going to do something that the world is going to be shocked by. However, Germany is presuming 
that the Belgian king is going to be bought with a price. Okay, If that's not working, he's going to be bought with threats. And he will stand aside because what king is dumb enough to fight a nation 10 times its strength? That's, that's literally what it is, 10 times its strength. And that's just its manpower. But you go into technological uh, developments and you know, artillery shells and all these things, Germany has massive amount of resource going towards military science and development and training. Belgium is a neutral country. So Belgium doesn't spend its time and its money and its energies trying to cultivate a strong military force because it trusts the different pacts that it has with all the nations that surround it say, we will ensure your neutrality. So it's not just that they're one-tenth the size, they're like one-thousandth one the power. So who in their right mind, if you're the king of this country, wouldn't stand aside? And that's what the Germans are betting on. The Germans I literally have convinced Kaiser Wilhelm that William II, remember I was going to call him that, they've, they've convinced him that, German, that Belgium will stand aside. They will not try and fight this. Trust us. We know them well. There is no way that Albert, well, how, what do we know about Albert? Well, we know he's related to Leopold. That's what we know. Hmm. Underestimating Albert. William II says, a sword has been forced into our hand. The Schlieffen plan, it must go through Belgium. Now, if you're a thinking person, I mean, it doesn't take rocket scientists to look at this and go, um, so Germany, could we rethink this? Because I don't know if you recognize what's just about to happen. You know, because we, we can look back and say, that was dumb. In fact, most people would say the greatest, one of the greatest errors in all of human history was Germans' violation of Belgium's neutrality. You know why? Because first of all, they decided to pick a fight with France, okay, unnecessarily. To do that, they need to go through Belgium. What does that do? That initiates Great Britain, who is part of the guarantee of neutrality. Great Britain at that time, that exact day, had no interest in being a part of this war. And yet now, they have no choice. Because you have violated a neutral country. If we said nothing, well then the world's gonna fall to pieces. So Germany is going to bring in arguably the most powerful nation on earth to fight against it. Not because this island nation known as Great Britain has a lot of men, it has a 70,000 person standing army. They have the strongest navy in the world, but they also have colonies, they own most of the world. So they can draw from all those colonies and bring all those troops against this country. It's like, uh, William, you might wanna think this one through. They had already thought it through and they were convinced that Great Britain would not get in, why? Because Belgium would stand aside. And if Belgium stands aside, the world would say, oh, they're participating with the Germans, which is why Albert is going to say, not on your life. Am I going to side with you in this? So Schlieffen, Alfred von Schlieffen, says this, it's military necessity. You're going to notice everything that the Germans say involves the word necessity. That's the word. That's the catchword of the day. The whole of Germany must throw itself upon one enemy, the strongest, most powerful, most dangerous enemy, and that can only be France. The enemy's front is not the objective. The essential thing is to crush the enemy's flanks and complete the extermination by attack upon his rear. Belgium will not resist by force of arms. She will be satisfied to protest. See, this is part of the plan. Belgium will not resist. And that plan is like the Bible to the Germans. It's like, oh, it says it. It says it right there. Schlieffen said it. And Schlieffen, I mean, that, that's like uh, divine uh, revelation right there. Schlieffen designated 34 divisions to take the roads through Belgium. That is a lot of men. It's like the biggest military force that has ever moved in any direction in all of history up to this point is actually going along the streets of Belgium here. 34 divisions to take the roads through Belgium, estimated to be somewhere around a million to 1.2 million men marching through the streets of Belgium. Disposing on their way of Belgium six divisions, sort of like, heh. 
if, as seemed to the Germans unlikely, they chose to resist. So if they did resist, well, they only have six divisions, we have 34. The Germans were intensely anxious that they should not resist because resistance would mean destruction of railways and bridges and consequent dislocation of the schedule to which the German staff was passionately attached. 950 hours. It has to work this way. If it doesn't work this way, the whole plan falls to pieces. So it is critical that it works. To persuade Belgium against futile resistance, Schlieffen arranged that she should be confronted prior to invasion by an ultimatum, requiring, requiring her to yield all fortresses, railways, and troops, or face bombardment of her fortified cities. Heavy artillery was ready to transform the threat of bombardment into reality if necessary. So say, for whatever reason, some strange possibility that the Belgium king doesn't catch the drift here, doesn't fall for you know, the whole ploy. Well, we threaten. And we make it very clear. Now, right up to this day, even the day before, William is talking to Albert saying, hey, you're my brother. I only have the best interest in you know, your safety and peace. But then they need to say, yeah, and we're ready to destroy you if you don't do exactly as we ask. Schlieffen says, it must come to a fight. Oh, by the way, these are his final words before he dies. So if you're going to be like passing away and, you know, uh, fading, you know, what are you thinking about? You know, hopefully you're thinking about eternal things uh, as opposed to the Schlieffen plan, Der Tag, but that's what he's thinking about in 1913. It must come to a fight. Only make the right wing strong. That's like what he's saying. As, and then he like dies. It's like, that is pathetic, Schlieffen. Wrong perspective on life. Uh, Barbara Tuckman says this, the Belgians were not expected to fight, but if they did, the power of the German assault was expected to persuade them quickly to surrender. The schedule called for the roads through Liège to be opened by the 12th day of mo mobilization. Brussels to be taken by M19. That's the 19th day of mobilization. The French frontier crossed on mobilization day 22, M22. A line at Thionville, St. Quentin, reached by M31. Paris and decisive victory by M39. And that gives just enough time. If it's M39 that we reach Paris and take Paris, then M40 is being swung against the Russians. We can do this, guys, as long as we stay true to the plan. You got that? Okay, do you understand? The plan is everything. Okay, if the plan fails, we could lose Germany. Put off the old, put on the new. So every single one of us needs to identify with Belgium in this situation. That we have a history that has been cowed to the enemy. And we have been bought off many times. And the enemy has gotten us to be silent. You know those moments where there's, there's someone that needs the gospel around you, and yet you are sort of slipped it's not usually gold coins you know, that you're giving. You're not given uh, pounds of you know, British pounds. However, you were given something, whether it's peace. You know, I, I promise you comfort. I promise you this. I promise you that you know, no one will make fun of you if you just keep your mouth shut right now. Don't share the gospel. You see, there is a cowing that we have gone through, and every single one of us, I could guarantee it, has tasted it. And we know what it's like to have the enemy use our roads our road system to accomplish his ends. He's used our mouth many times, and we've spoken words that harm other people. It's not because we intend to. It's not like Belgium was designed as a thoroughfare for the German army. It wasn't. However, even though we weren't designed for this, we can become that very easily. And the enemy is convinced that you have a price. I don't know if you know that. Back you know, in the, the secret conversations of hell, they believe that you're purchasable. There's one quality about a Christian that needs to be very, very real and that there is no price tag on the Christian. There's two ways of living out this life. One is in the first condition, which is controlled by the flesh. And if we live in the flesh, we have a purchase price. In fact, it's actually a lot lower than you would guess. However, when we transfer kingdoms and our loyalties shift from being about us to being about Christ, the price tag is ripped off. And there is no, no longer any ability to purchase us with the baits and the temptations of this world. At least that's what we're given grace for. 
but we need to walk in that. And so in this situation, you're going to see this need for Belgium to put off its Leopold avarice and adopt a new nature, which is going to shock the Germans. Just like I have this grin in my soul at the thought of our enemy being shocked when we say no. And he's like, you're not supposed to say no. My whole plan hinges upon you saying yes. Read my lips. No. Oh, it feels good, guys. Wait till you catch the vision. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what's your position? In Christ. Oh, this is talking about you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I put together some scriptures about putting off because this is the idea. We are literally putting off one set of clothing to put on a new set. So this is uh, put off the old man. That's Ephesians 4.22. You are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth, Colossians 3.8. You have put off the old man with his deeds, Colossians 3.9. Now look at this, the contrast. Let us put on the armor of light, Romans 13.12. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 13, 14. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. There's a shift here, guys. I know your past might be Leo II, but it really doesn't matter what your past is at this exact juncture. When you come to Jesus Christ, there is a change of nature. And your little thoroughfare and all those roads that lead through, and the enemy has plans and he has schemes, it's an amazingly satisfying thought to think that by turning to Jesus, you close off those roads to the enemy. And now suddenly you become a beacon uh, of resistance that is going to stir the world to action. Literally what Belgium is going to do is going to stir the world to action to stop this aggressor. So this isn't... Uh, what it says in scripture, but it sort of does. This isn't an adaptation for what's going on. It's like in Belgium, this is the, the translation. Belgium, put off Leopold and his avarice, lust, and wickedness, and put on Albert and his courage, honor, honesty, compassion, and love. See, I haven't really introduced you to Albert, and I didn't even say much about Leopold, but I have a hunch that you're already concluded that Leopold's not really the guy you want leading Belgium right now. You don't want the old man leading your life. Spoils the whole thing. And yes, there's a purchase price there and the enemy knows it and your roads are going to be used for darkness and destruction. But you put on a new man and suddenly everything changes and these roads will now only be used for the glory of God. The plan to cow the Leopold replacement. Remember, this is an unknown quantity. Who is Albert? We're just presuming because he's related to Leopold, he must be like Leopold. Just because you're a descendant of Adam does not mean you need to behave like Adam. So what is their plan? Gigantic bribes, numberless troops, and harrowing threats. I mean, this is actually a very effective plan. If you're thinking about it from the German mindset, and you're thinking even yourself, I mean, the Germans would have bought this too. They're like, what would we go for? Well, if you came into our country with 10 times the troops that we have, I mean, this is, you've never seen a marching army like this in all of history up to this point. And Belgium is not a military state. They do not sit around and talk about these things and cherish their you know, romantic war history. They are a neutral state, and they struggle with mm, sluggishness because of it. It's actually not necessarily the healthiest thing to be a neutral state. It really helps to have your guard up and to be building your military system. Let that be a lesson to all of us too. In here, in other words, at any time the Germans could make their way into our country and we need to be ready for it, even though they feign friendship. So, but gigantic bribes? I mean, think about that, guys. I mean, I, I, I'm hoping you don't have a price tag, but you have to admit a billion dollars is a pretty good price tag to get you to have ease and comfort in your life. It's like all we need to do is not mess with the passing troops. That's all we need to do. It's actually not that hard of a model. 
Okay, so if the gigantic bribe doesn't work, the numberless troops may. Or how about the harrowing threats? We're going to blow up all your cities. Have you seen our artillery guns? You seen this? Yeah, this will devastate every building in every city you have. So if you cherish your country, you know, you may want to think this through, guys. Just, I, I'm just saying. So you would actually think, if you're the German in this story, that this would work, especially with the guy who was recently on the throne. And yet we have this unknown character that's been on the throne since 1909, but we can't figure him out. We're just assuming he must be like his uncle. So here's a famous Belgian response, and I thought you guys should hear it. It is really good. So when they give the ultimate, when Germany gives the ultimatum, they go from friend to foe instantly. They literally go from, hey, we have your best interests in mind to, you need to let us through. Here's your ultimatum. They were given 12 hours to respond. It's like, excuse me, friends don't handle things this way? And this is what's a uh, famous Belgian response. If we are to be crushed, let us be crushed gloriously. Well, I tell you what, if you could take that quote and stick it into your Christian life, you would do, be doing really well. Because the enemy will say, I'm going to crush you. Well, if I'm to be crushed, I might as well make it like a grape and create some sweet wine. In other words, this is what Jesus went through. He was crushed, if you want to say it that way, and yet the redemption of the world came out of it. Hey, if I'm going to be crushed, I might as well do it gloriously. Here's King Albert's uh, response. This is on August 2nd, 1914. This is, he gives a speech. He says, our answer must be no. Whatever the consequences, our duty is to defend our territorial integrity. In this, we must not fail. The Germans didn't see this coming. Are you serious? Albert is saying no? Uh, our answer must be no. When that temptation is coming into your life and the enemy wants to just use your roads just to get through, it's not, we're not going to harm anything. We're not going to say that you, know, you have to become our you know, uh, slave state. I'm just saying I want to use your life a little. Our answer must be no. Whatever the consequences, our duty is to defend our territorial integrity. In this we must not fail. Don't you like this guy? I don't know if you guys are falling uh, in love with this guy like I am, but I like Albert. I mean, all you have to do is say that he's like Winston Churchill, and I start to like him. But then he's like the Theodore Roosevelt, and it's like, okay, we have ourselves a hero. Albert cannot be purchased. He will not forsake his country in exchange for personal wealth. He says no to the German Empire, which outnumbers him 10 to 1. He takes the lead of the Belgium armed forces. When war is declared, according to the Constitution of, of Belgium, he becomes the leader of the armed forces. So how does he rule? How does he lead his troops? He leads them on the ground in the trenches. This guy literally has his military uniform on. You couldn't even tell the difference hardly between him and the other Belgium soldiers. He is like in the midst of bomb blasts, the king. He jumps into the trenches alongside his people. He risks his life amid the hail of bomb shells and machine gun fire. He breaks Belgium levees, which are the key. I mean, this is like one of the big, he literally allows even the destruction of his own country from the levees, which is salt water onto his farmland. These have been built up for years so that it could not be used by the Germans. And so he's literally going to allow harm to come to his own country, lest this foreign power be able to utilize his territory. So he breaks Belgium levies to stop the advance of this aggression in Europe. He valiantly risked his life and comforts to assist little Belgium. Listen to this. His wife, Elizabeth, worked as a nurse during the war. The queen is functioning like a nurse in the war. I've never heard of this before, guys. And I, you know, I've studied a lot of history. I've never heard of a king and a queen literally coming down to the level of commoner, the king functioning like a soldier, the queen functioning like a nurse. Whoever this guy is, I'd like a little of what he has in me, right? This is good stuff. After the war, he pleaded for mercy to be shown Germany instead of harsh reprisals. There is no man and no nation in this war probably more violated than Belgium. 
And at the end of the war, when they're at the Treaty of Versailles, you know the one voice, it's like this lone voice that's crying in the wind, saying, show mercy. Who was it? Albert. I mean, that's, I want to get back to that, because I, I feel if you went through my uh, Alfred the Great series, there's, there's a picture that is very similar to that, and it's, it's deeply stirring to me. So listen to Albert. You get a little insight into his spiritual focus, too. So this is a letter written to, oh boy, uh, I don't do Chinese very well either, Lu Sengxiang, former prime minister of China. Consecrating oneself wholly to the service of our Lord gives to those touched by grace the peace of soul, which is the supreme happiness here below. And then listen to this. This is his response to the danger of Christian ideals being abandoned in Belgium. He says, every time society has distanced itself from the gospel, which preached humility, fraternity, and peace, the people have been unhappy because the pagan civilization of ancient Rome, which they wanted to replace it with, is based only on pride and the abuse of force. Which is interesting. This guy is different than King Leo. He is not thinking the same way. He doesn't function the same way. What's the difference? Every king is the same, aren't they? That's what the Germans are thinking. Every king, if you're a king, well, that means you're going to be arrogant, proud, and purchasable. There's always a price. But is that true? Every king is the same, aren't they? Every human is made of the same stuff. Have you ever heard that said, that everyone has a purchase price? That one statement really irks me. Now, because, of course, we see Jesus coming to this earth, taking on the form of a man, and yes, he did it perfectly, he's God. But do you remember, he was tested and tempted in the wilderness to see if he had a purchase price. He was offered all the kingdoms of the earth. Not bad. Okay, that's even better than what the Germans were offering uh, Albert. And he turned it down cold. What? Can you believe, can a human do that? You see, in our natural man, we are fragile and vulnerable to the enemy's ploy. The enemy wants to use our roads. Well, if he pays a high enough price, if he gives us a, enough good fodder for justification, well, we just may participate. However, we are not who we once were. We have transferred to a new kingdom and to a new way of life, and we have a new system of thought and reasoning. The answer is no. Well, could you think about it a little? I mean, I want to give you 12 hours to process this. I don't need 12 hours to process. My answer is no, and I decided that even before you opened your mouth. It doesn't matter what the value is. Well, how about I triple it? It doesn't matter what the value is. The answer is no. My answer is no. My answer is no. Saying no to the devil is an art form. But if you've never practiced doing it, it feels strange. Like, am I allowed to do that? Can I do that? Don't function as first man. Function as the second man, the one controlled by the Spirit. Uh, Barbara Tuckman says, Leopold was expected to barter Belgium's neutrality for a purse of two million pounds sterling. Even after Leopold was succeeded in 1909 by his nephew, King Albert, a very different quantity, Belgium's resistance was still expected by Schlieffen's successors to be a formality. It's a formality that they will stand aside. It's formality that they will take the purchase price. King Albert I of Belgium. This is the quote I started with. What does he take me for? Well, he takes you for a Leopold II. He takes you for a man after his own interests. He takes you for a man controlled by the flesh. Okay, guys, I'm going to give you a quote on the screen. I'm going to keep the Albert picture up there because I want you to identify. You know, he's a handsome guy. Right, so the girls, I almost stuck another optional picture with a, a girl's hair, hairdo on it. But I decided, okay, girls, you just need to use your imagination, okay? But this is the new you. This is not the old you. This is the new you. You are not Leopold II. You are Albert. You have transferred kingdoms. The devil wants to con you into thinking that you're the old guy. That yes, you know the, all those frailties and all those failures in the past, they're still present tense today, and you are still just as vulnerable to them. What the enemy is not telling you is that you have power to overcome. You have power to say no. 
You have been given grace so that you could live different, reason different, and control this territory with these nice Belgium roads differently. And when Germany, with its vast Schlieffen plan that intends to use you as part of its destruction, runs into that moment where they try and cross your borders, they're going to find that you have your weapon raised. The answer, oh William, is no. What does he take me for? Does he think I'm the old Eric? Did he not realize that I am a completely new quantity? That there is something new that is taking place right here. Father, I pray that we would be freshly reminded that we have been called to be as Albert, not as Leo. Lord, and I pray that you would establish that fact in the bedrock of our souls and you would groom us after your pattern that we would preserve the roads of this life and the integrity of this territory for your glory, for your honor, and for your praise. It's in the precious name we pray this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.